0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
1: Welcome you to Ports Talk. This is your host, Alan, and we are at the Bluefront Cafe for the Bentonia Blues Festival, 49th. And I have... Nineteenth Street Red with me. He played yesterday. You have played uh, several nights uh, this week, right?
2: No, no, I just played last night. Okay, uh, I did a I did an hour long set, and then and then we had a jam session with was we really had a good time with yeah. R.L. Boyce and Lightning Malcolm, and Jimmy was up there playing with us, and another guy Keith Johnson who uh-huh. uh, who's a New York guy. Well, he's a Mississippi. Born in Mississippi, but he's been in New York for years. He played with Taylor Dane and some some famous people. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, man. And so, uh, just a little bit about you. Uh, where are you originally from?
2: I was born in New York, and I grew up in. Uh, well, we we moved to the West Coast for a minute, and then I they, we moved back to Washington D.C. area, and I grew up in Maryland. And uh, and when I was a young adult, I moved to Oakland, California, and. I I really love the um the, the whole juke joint scene, you know. I got turned on to blues at a young age and they had and a
1: juke joint out in Oakland?
2: They had all kinds of juke man, it was like great. It was like any one night there'd be like five different places where they had like juke and blues, you know. Oh wow. In the neighborhood, you know. And I mean not like, you know, biscuits and blues, posh blues clubs. I'm talking real juke, you know, citified juke joints, mm-hmm. you know, in, in Oakland. And you know, that was a great scene, man, during the nineties I was there and uh and it was uh, all kinds of guys, Country Pete McGill, uh Little Frankie Lee, um Maurice McKinnis, uh uh, you know, uh, um yeah, there was so many you know, uh Wiley Trask, you know, the caravan, Ronnie Stewart in the Caravan of All Stars, Johnny Hartzman, all these people were there. And it was a great scene. We could we all played together, and that's and that's where I really experienced for the first time the southern, you know, the uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, Texas culture that mm-hmm. went with the blues, mm-hmm. and and I ended up moving to New Orleans.
1: Then so that's what led for, you to New Orleans. Yeah, that's what led me. To so New I Orleans. mean, what about just music? Like, when did you pick up guitar? Was it when you moved to Oakland, or how long? Was no, music no, I was, your
2: life? Uh, you know, when I was, um, when I was a young. Child, I remember hearing Percy Sledge sing "When a Man Loves a Woman," and it was captivating. I wasn't sure if I hated it or I loved it or I was scared. I mean, I think it scared me actually. You know, there's something about it, and it just stuck with me. And from that point on, I started noticing like the sound of blues guitar. Mm -hmm. And uh, my my father bought me a guitar when I was about eight years old, and I learned the first thing I learned was the Jimmy Reed lick. You know. Like this, and uh, and you know, and I started listening. I I started reading. uh, I read this interview, Keith Richard interview, Keith Richard's interview (coughs) in Rolling Stone magazine, and he talked about all these blues guys. Mm -hmm. So I went out and bought like the Robert Johnson records, and I started listening to Muddy Waters, and and that's how I got into blues. Yeah,
1: yeah, and so. I know you don't just do it exclusively Chicago style. Like I mean, you hopped on with R.L. and Jimmy last night and Latin and Malcolm. So, uh, what is your favorite kind of style of blues to play?
2: Well, or
1: is there a preference?
2: Uh, well, yeah, I guess there really is. But I mean, it's kind of just like anybody else. It's not. It's a little complicated because you know. So you know, when I was a young teenager, we had this um, a group of my friends that were all. Uh, musicians. And we used to get together every night, six nights, usually six, sometimes seven nights a week. And, you know, we'd, we'd uh, get together and, and smoke our fa- party favors, you know, and get in the mood. Mm-hmm. And we sat there and copied like all those chess records. Like we kind of took the blueprint from the Rolling Stones because that's how they learned to play. You know, they, they, they would copy note for note those old blues records, mm-hmm. and that's how we—that's how really how I learned to play guitar was from that. And those were all Chicago blues records. But then at some point, I must have been about fifteen years old or sixteen—I don't know—I just heard the name T-Bone Walker. Okay. And I bought a T-Bone Walker record, the um, the the double record, the Blue Note reissue of the Imperial sides, and that just—I was captivated, man. I I just I I mean I was just so drawn to to his sound on guitar and I learned how to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I spent I spent years and by the time I was in my mid-twenties, I, I thought I was T-Bone Walker, man, right? But I had this background in like Chicago blues. Mm-hmm. Chicago blues is Mississippi blues. I mean, John Lee Hooker, when you listen to like R.L. Boyce or even R.L. Burnside, John Lee Hooker is a huge component of that. Now he's not really Chicago blues because he was in Detroit, but that's all kind of—it's all like Mississippi blues gone north. Yeah, and there, and everybody had their own personality and had their own music. And of course, Chess Records was a big thing. Leonard Chess and that had—they had a sound that's you know, the, the basis of what became Chicago blues, but that's kind of like a little bit of a lie because Chicago blues was already happening and Leonard Chess captured it, you know. It's Mississippi blues that's moved north to the city.
1: You yeah, know? It'd kind of be like what Fat Possum did for the Hill Country blues as far as capturing. Yeah, but Burnside Hill Country
2: blues is Mississippi blues too, and it's really, that, like, Howlin' Wolf, a, a big component of his sound is that Hill Country stomp. And, you know, that's called Chicago blues. So, I mean, it's really hard to draw the line between different styles. They run together. Mm -hmm. I mean, even when you take Blind Lemon Jefferson, who's a Texas blues artist, and Robert Johnson copied him, Crossroads Blues is really blues jump the rabbit uh, and modified a little bit, you know what I mean? It's it's, it's so the, the styles all run together. It's Texas blues and Mississippi blues, and then the East Coast blues. You had Blind ba- Blake and and uh, Reverend Gary Davis and Blind Boy Fuller. That style also runs into the Mississippi style because a lot of the Mississippi guys did rags, and it's it's hard to tell the difference sometimes when the Mississippi guys are doing rags or when the East Coast guys are doing rags.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, tell me a little bit about your time spent in New Orleans. You were down there for twenty years. Twenty years, yeah. So, uh, music led you down there. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, just what about Nineteenth Street Red? Where did the name come from? What, did you get? Well, it that was from there? the West Coast because okay. I lived.
2: I, I had a shop on Nineteenth and Cap in San Francisco in the in the West Bay. We say, I really was an Oakland guy because I went to. I drove to Oakland every night to do to go to these little clubs. Yeah. Oakland was fantastic during the 90s. I mean, in any one night, there'd be like five or more uh, blues joints you could go to. And I would just go and set up my guitar in one of them. And then there was this whole group of singers that would hop, you know, like there was a bunch of singers that loved to, to, to sit in. And they'd go out every night too. And they'd go from bar to bar. So you'd sit there in one bar and during the course of the night, there'd be like 10 blues singers would sit in with the band. Yeah, and I got to be part of that scene, and uh, and and use those guys on my gigs. And, and anyway, so I had a, a shop in San Francisco on 19th Street, and the name really came from uh, I started playing uh, on the street outside the baseball games at at um, uh, Giant Stadium, uh-huh. which was, became Pac Bell Park, and I think I don't know what they call it now, but you know whatever. Anyway, um, I used to set up out the, the outside there and. One time I was set up and some scalpers were over there and uh, I had a CD called 19th Street Blues, and they were they were talking. And they said, well, who's that over there? Who is that over there?" And I'm and and then I heard the other guy go, "Oh, that that's 19th Street Red," and that's where I got that's the name so- from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool, man. And uh, yeah, so so anyway, so I I was in Oakland and we'd have all these little backyard parties and they'd cook barbecue and you know and and. Uh, and and we played blues and jam and you know, we were all a bunch of friends. We all played music together. It was a really good scene. Everyone in Oakland, all the all the black blues musicians in Oakland were from Louisiana and Texas, Arkansas, Mississippi. So the culture there was southern culture in those parties. Yeah and
1: kinda of sense that with the barbecue and then the yeah. together.
2: Absolutely. and I mean, and you know in d c, okay, when I lived in d c before I moved to Oakland, I um, see I grew up I was born in New York and I grew up in washington d c basically. Uh-huh. By the time I was like twenty, I was like seeking out where there might be blues. And there wasn't a lot of gut bucket blues in d c because it was kind of a sophisticated city. jazz and and soul music was popular. I go off on this because I grew up around soul music, man. We had we you could go to the park every Sunday and they'd have free concerts I and mean, you'd see like the OJ's and the Shy Lights and the Staple Singers for free. We'd like you know throw frisbees around and just be out there enjoying it. This was early seventies, you know, and but I did eventually find a blues scene in DC. And I ended up doing a very, every Thursday night gig was my night, and we had these incredible guys come down. And after a while, I had um, Lawrence Wheatley, the great jazz piano player, and um, and uh, um, uh, Nat Nat Turner, mm-hmm. the singer, uh, who actually played with Miles Davis for a while. He they, they all these guys would come down. We had a horn section. We had this big blues jam in D.C. And then all these like down home guys, uh, 16th Street Pete, Hatchet, guy named Blues Man, they'd all come down and sit in. There was this other guy, I can't remember his name, but he had this fantastic style. And these guys were mostly like, you know. Could have been professional, but they raised families and got jobs instead, you know. But now they were their, their kids were grown, so they wanted to play blues.
1: You know, lately I've really been into Miles Davis. Did you spend a lot of time with his music when he was
2: well, Yeah, I loved, see, I you know, I love One loved, of the best
1: experimental and out-of-the-box, like, guitar players, I believe, uh, during that time. Like, uh, he was really out-of-the-box to me. Miles? Yeah.
2: Well, Miles, Miles revolutionized the trumpet. Yeah. you know miles revolutionized the whole way because he had the uh,
1: the bebop because it was free flow everything was it, was, it felt well jazzy, you know
2: it was complex in the harmony but he chose his notes like he would play one note that alluded to a scale that was like the only way that note could happen the way he played it 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 um it, it alluded to To a scale that was a complex scale laid over some, you know, altered chord. And he could he was like a genius in being able to choose like one or two notes that would like be like a whole universe of harmony um and he revolutionized the trumpet yes he did yeah but i loved his music i love jazz i still got lots of jazz records and i'm a hi-fi guy i got my hi-fi system and i i would be you know just yesterday i was listening to etta jones uh-huh. and her, and and her prestige side you know and the rudy van gelder stuff i i love that music I, I dinah washington and you know all the great you know well, of course dizzy and charlie parker and and you know and i like the old guys ben webster you know uh, um uh uh lester young you know billy holiday i remember when i was a kid i did a report for school and i did a uh, uh you know an oral report about billy holiday mm-hmm. and uh, and that everybody loved it i remembered it i couldn't believe it was so it went over so well yeah interview
1: going on yes ma'am okay <laughs>
2: So, but, but, uh, but yeah, to get back to what we're saying though, you know, so I had this whole thing with all these jazz musicians and blues musicians together in D.C., and that really was Southern culture too. Yeah. You know, because that's just what that scene was, you know. I mean, even though this, you know, in D.C., was really part of what was called Northern Soul, you know, the Philadelphia, the Philly sound, you know, and a gambling and huff. Mm-hmm. That was the new, the, the, the D.C. sound, Billy Stewart, you know, remember his song "Summertime" and "Sitting in the Park." That was the northern soul sound, really, but it still was had its roots in the South, of course, because mm-hmm. the music all came from the South.
1: So let's talk a little bit about your time spent in New Orleans, like uh, just as far as like when you first got there and finding the scene. And
2: okay, so here I am in D.C. and I'm like infatuated with blues. I'm like you know. 18, 19 years old, and I made a friend, and he started bringing records by, and then I got this other friend who turned me, um, you know, TK used to bring by all these, um, uh, Torquil Kinnear, used to bring by all these, like, Chicago blues records. I had another friend, Terrence McArdle, who writes for the Washington Post now, and he turned me on to New Orleans Rhythm and Blues, you know, and it was different. It was a, had a big, component of T-Bone Walker, so I like that, and uh, at first I heard Smiley Lewis and Dave Bartholomew's bands, which, you know, later became Fats Domino's band, Um, but all the obscure guys, Snooks Eaglin, Mm. and there's so many of them, you know what I mean, Uh, um, uh, uh, you know, like Jesse Hill, okay, so this was, this was the, it's funny because I ended up making friends with those families. It's like I go to, I have Thanksgiving with Jesse Hill's family. His wife is still alive, his widow. She's 91. Oh, wow. Yeah, Dorothy Hill, yeah. And, um, and uh, it's the Andrews family. James Andrews. Trombone Shorty's from that family. Trombone Shorty, mm-hmm. who I think most people have heard of. You know, Troy Andrews. There's Glenn Andrews. James Andrews is... James is a really talented guy, too, you know? And the whole family is very musical. But anyway, so here I am in... You know, and I always... You know, I went, to, I moved to the West Coast with my girlfriend, and we broke up, and, you know, I, st- I spent about 10 years there. But, I mean, I just never fit in in California, man. I just... I don't know. I mean, I loved my... The, the blues scene was great. I fit in there, and that was beautiful. But that was really the southern scene. That was really, like you know, like what I, you know, it was this this Southern blues scene and, and San Francisco and I had my shop there, you know, it was just very cliquish and I just wasn't hip enough for them or something. You know what I mean? And I, my interest in blues, nobody cared about blues. They were all into punk rock and alternative and, and, you know, Nirvana and whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, this kind of music. So... Anyway, I you know, at one point I said, you know what, I need to move to New Orleans. So I moved to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And at that point, okay, I'd been playing on the street in San Francisco with this group, Chicago Brother and Sister Blues Band. This couple who learned their craft uh, in on Maxwell Street in Chicago. And they were rough, man. They were rough. Drinking and, you know, crack, bin, crack pipe binges. And, you know, they were rough, man. Um, and eventually... Eventually, it ended in violence, you know. Um, but, uh, but you know, I I left just before that happened. I kind of saw it coming. But uh, we played out on the street, and we used to make incredible amounts of money. We go and just like set up on the street in uh, San Francisco, like in the financial district. We just drive our vans onto the sidewalk, like it was like some kind of like festival or something and we were supposed to be there but we weren't we just like would drive our vans up there take it, take set up a generator right. and put up the band and in an hour we sometimes we'd have eight hundred or thousand dollars in the tip jar yeah and i was like wow i never thought of this and you didn't have to like book gigs or anything so we go out in the afternoon and then we go out again at five o'clock when they get off work and we were making so much damn money i i'd close my shop but every time i start to close my shop you know i I repair audio equipment, you know, guitar amplifiers and high-end hi-fi. Every time I'd start to close down my shop because I was making money with the music, they would have they would self-destruct and it would all fall apart, and then we wouldn't play for two weeks, and I'd be broke. So I got tired of that, and I started doing it just by myself as a mm-hmm. one-man band, you know. And I, man, and that's when I started playing outside the ba- the ball games in 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 San Francisco. And, uh, and you know, that was great because I could play every day. I played up at Fisherman's Wharf. I'd set up at the festivals. And I really was making good money. I, mean, it was, I couldn't believe how much money. And I And I didn't have a bank account. I had bags, pillowcases filled with money. I had so much money. And, and, uh, you know, and I kind of invested in recording equipment with that money. And I still have that. Um, but uh, uh, then when I moved to New Orleans... I said, "Okay, I want to I want to just play in the clubs. I don't want to do the street." But I ended up playing on the street. Yeah. And again, I found a way to make a lot of money. And for the first few years, you know, from like, you know, 2002 to Katrina, well, actually even after Katrina, but up to Katrina, I really cultivated it and I was playing a bunch of spots, and I got all the brass bands for my friends because I'd be out on their, on the street, and most of the other street musicians that were like me, you know, transplants, didn't get along with the brass bands because the brass bands come, and they don't care what you're doing. They set up and play. They don't even, like, pretend... They, it's like you're not even there. You might be playing, and they'll just come up right next to you and play. Well, to me, these cats were New Orleans natives, and they're young kids, young teenagers playing jazz music. I mean... My hat goes off to them, man. I'd stop playing and I'd be in awe of them, and they they checked that out. And through that, I made friends with all the young brass bands, mm-hmm. and so they would like actually, after a while, if I was playing, they'd wait for me to finish sometimes, and that was unheard of, you know. Right. So I got a, a foothold on the street scene in New Orleans, and at that point, there, there's a place called Frenchman Street in New Orleans. I was the first one to play music again. You know, since the 90s, there was some, there was a street scene there a little bit. But everyone told me, no, you can't play on Frenchman Street. You can't do that. That won't work. That won't work. Well, I was the only one out there, man. And again, I made a bunch of money. And then after a while, the more musicians came out and the brass bands came out. And then Frenchman got to be so crowded, I stopped doing it, you know. And I, I started playing. I fell in with a bunch of guys that used to play with Fats Domino and Irma Thomas and these guys. Uh, some famous musicians, and there now, then I got to be friends with the sons, and and disciples of the guys that originally got me into the New Orleans music. The guy, mm-hmm. so these guys, their fathers used to be playing in in bands with Professor Longhair and Smiley Lewis, and. And, you know, and I got to see Snooks England a bunch of times. And New Orleans was fantastic like this. And eventually I did find my way to that same kind of culture that I found in, in Oakland. I found it in New Orleans. And Guitar Slim's son is a good friend of mine. This guy, you know, Rodney is his real name, Rodney Armstrong. And he's guitar. He's really Guitar Slim's son. He's so talented. You know, Guitar Slim, the guy who did things I used to do, mm-hmm. you know. Lord, I won't do no more. Well, he, he's, he he loves old school soul. He There's not a, a song that of that era, of the late 60s, early 70s, even into the 80s. And blues, too. But he knows every one of those songs. I mean, if he can hum it in his head, the next thing you know, he he's has the guitar it. part. He's so talented. He's another cat that's like a good friend of mine. And, you know... Um, it's the Indians I go out with the Indians and I would chant with the Indians and I could never see you can you know I'm, a, I'm not part of that culture I'm always going to be an outsider but they like me because I sing loud and you know it's you know Indians get out of the way you know, Indians out of the way, or you know, Shoe Fly, don't bother me. Hey, you know, hey, 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 hey. you um know, um, uh, um. Indian Red and all that stuff man I would I would go out there with those guys and I got to be friends with them and a bunch of them they were involved with the blues you know the rhythm and blues scene too you'd find musicians oh you wow know. yeah because no that's the roots of uh, of the funk and the, the New Orleans funk and the because and the, uh, that beat they do it's like you know Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's like a clave it's a it's a like a rumba you know and that's and that's and that's where that got injected into this into the to the music of new orleans is from the indians yeah
1: cool man and so uh from new orleans to clarks what what the big easy just wasn't easy no more? Or what led you up to Mississippi?
2: You got too expensive, man. The real estate developers came in and made it a vacation spot for the rich. And while, you know, and after Katrina, see, oh man, now you, this is a can of worms. Well, after Katrina, okay, picture this. So here's New Orleans. and then the storm comes now everything's devastated right mm-hmm. they got to rebuild so who's going to rebuild you've got military and construction workers right so this is the first thing that happened well military and construction workers don't give a hoot about traditional jazz or blues they want they want classic rock and strippers right mm-hmm. so that became the big business that was the first businesses on Bourbon Street and in the Quarter that started to to come up. I mean, and you know, New Orleans people, you know, the people that that grew up in New Orleans, they love classic rock. I mean, it's it's normal. That was like, you know, everywhere. The people that grew up in the 70s, not me, cuz I saw muddy waters when I was a little kid and I wasn't interested in rock after that so much, you know. But but most of people from my generation love classic rock. Well, That was there, but after the storm, that became the focus of of the French Quarter. Classic rock and strippers, you know? So when the European, when the high-end tourists came, like in 2006 for for, for Jazz Fest and for Mardi Gras, when the high-end tourists wanted to come back to New Orleans to support New Orleans because of... You know, after the storm, I mean, everybody thought it was a good idea to come and and contribute, you know. Mm -hmm. What they found was classic rock and strippers instead of the music that they loved. I mean, these people had been coming, European tourists were coming to New Orleans and, you know, looking for blues and jazz and and. And it was hard, harder to find it. You couldn't find it in the quarter. You had to know where to go in these little clubs, you know, like I say, in the neighborhoods, yeah. okay? So that was the first thing that happened. Now, another thing that happened was that there was all this money, right? So who got the money? I mean, the, you know, there was like, I think, was it $600 billion was allocated to restore New Orleans, rebuild New Orleans, Well, the crafty real estate developers came in, bought houses, fixed them up, flipped them. They got flipped again. They got flipped again. Then the Airbnb thing became real big. And and there's literally thousands of corporate-owned Airbnbs in New Orleans. And this has displaced people and driven the rents up. So, while when I first came to New Orleans, you know, I could have this, apart, this house, a whole house, big shotgun, you know, 1,000 square feet with a yard for like less than $400 a month. So, when I left New Orleans, I was paying like 1100 a month for a, for a house, and then the landlord wanted to sell it. And when I went looking for a comparable house, I realized I was going to have to pay like $2,000 a month. Jeez. I couldn't do it. Yeah. You know, I I mean, I was already $1,000 a month. I mean, I was struggling every month to come up
1: with the money. Yeah, and at that point, all you're thinking about is money.
2: Okay, so at the same time, so I'm playing with all these guys that played with Fats Don. I'm going to these little bars and sitting in, and I'm not really making money. They're not really hiring me to do their gigs. Once in a while, they call me, and I do some gig with these guys. And, you know, these were master musicians. I'm, like, learning a lot about music and playing with them and trying my hand at, like, learning some of those scales we were talking about, about, you know miles davis and and the and the jazz stuff. there were some jazz clubs, and mm-hmm. i I love that music, you know, so i I started to, you know I started to, to to you know to to educate myself with these guys. But I had gigs like on the Gulf Coast, Jackson, Vicksburg, Natchez, Clarksdale. And I'd bring these guys to my gigs, and we could make a bunch of money going to Mississippi. And they were happy to play with me. I called them up, man, I, like my long-term bass player. He hired me to sing in his band in New Orleans and we'd make like $50 maybe a piece on his gigs. But I'd break them to my gigs and, we, and, and this guy, B.J. Harvey is his name, he played for 25 years, he played bass with Irma Thomas. Mm-hmm. And he, what a compliment. He hired me to front his band, you know, to sing. He, liked, he believed in my singing so much and but I could use him as a bass player and he he was a, he play, his, he played with professor longhair as a teenager but his dad was professor longhair's longtime guitar player you know uh, bob harvey yeah cool man bill harvey bill harvey excuse me yeah yeah so so you know it, it it I was coming into mississippi to make money and I made better money in mississippi and I realized you know I could live so much cheaper that's so right. Clarksdale, I've been coming to Clarksdale for, you know, 20, you know pretty much since I moved to New Orleans, I started going to Clarksdale for festivals and stuff.
1: So how did you figure out uh, about Bentonia and the Blue Front?
2: Well, I first heard of Bentonia because when I was a teenager, I was a big fan of Skip James. And reading the back of the record, oh, they talked go. about the Bentonia School of Blues. And I read about it, you know, because when you're young, you want to, you're absorbing all this stuff. And I read about Henry Stuckey and Skip James. I didn't really hear about Jack Owens till later, though. But Henry Stuckey, come, you know, going over to and, and fighting in the World War One, and learning Spanish flamenco guitar, and coming back, and this hybrid with this like finger picking that Skip James did, and then of course that was a huge influence on Robert, some of Robert Johnson's music. You know, mm-hmm. Robert Johnson stole that sound and made you know, um, uh, uh, you know. Uh, Stones in my pathway and all that stuff, you know. Um, But, uh, um, you know, he stole Devil Got My Woman, you know. But I love that music, and I heard of Bentonia. So here I am in New Orleans, and uh, actually, where did I hear? How did this happen? Um, I think what it was, a guy named Bill Abel. See, I was up in Memphis. I, I, got, I got to be good friends with Alvin Youngblood Hart. He's, I met him in, in Oakland, and, and we for, for 25 years we've been good friends. And I was up in Memphis visiting him, and he had to leave town, so I was like living in my van with my dogs up in Memphis. And I heard, Rosedale Blues Festival. So I went down to Rosedale, Mississippi, went to the Blues Festival, mm-hmm. and I met this guy, Bill Abel. And he told me about Bentoni. That must have been two thousand four or something. So the following year I came over here and and met Jimmy. Yeah. And and it was like for me it's like, wow, you know, Bentoni is this exotic sounding name that I read on a record from from like, you know, twenty years before that. And 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 they really liked me here, man. I played my street blues, my solo blues, and they really liked me and and that's and I've been I played the Blues festival here, like for the last 16 years, yeah,
1: yeah. I know, uh, which I just recently found out about Ben Bentonia, but I mean, first time I heard your music was at the Grammy party, and then, um, okay, it was back in May, I think, September. yeah, yeah, was and then, it uh, uh, March, 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 yeah, yeah. it's a lot cooler then, <laughs> but uh, and then got to hear you play uh, yesterday, and so, um, I mean, just since you've been. Hanging out with Jimmy and playing in Bentonia, like what has that done as far as like uh, your impressions on guitar? Has it influenced you or taught you uh, any kind of a new way?
3: Well,
2: not so much, but it taught me to take the skills I have and play with a cat like Jimmy. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, like when when I play with someone like that, like last night I sat in with R.L. and and Jimmy played with us too. I mean, I'm not. It's not about me. It's about me hearing. For me, it's about listening to what they do, and and helping them. You know, making it bigger. Like doing what's in their mind. That you know, as one person, they have things in their mind. You know, the the, the music they hear. I want to hear what they hear, and I want to. I want to. You know, help it grow. So, I've assimilated that sound. But I, did I actually ever sit down with Jimmy and have him show me anything? No, but you know, I mean, I, I've played an open D and open G. Jimmy plays in this what's called cross key tuning, which is um, is a D minor tuning,
3: mm-hmm.
2: which is what. But he'll play it. He'll play in like regular D, open D. If you if you can him a guitar like that, he'll play like that or standard. I've seen him play in standard too. You know, I don't know if I ever saw him play in open G though. But you know, he. You know, I assimilated that sound, and I actually feel really comfortable playing with Jimmy. I don't know if you noticed when we were playing last night, but he started a song and everybody kind of hesitated, but I knew exactly where to start because I play with him so much, you know uh-huh. so so yeah, so you know, I mean, I learned that way from uh, the, and, and 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 you know, and I did I never really tried to I, Bill Abel showed me a little bit of uh. Skip James's style, and I fooled with it for a second, but there's a bunch of guys that do it really well, and it just wasn't—it wasn't a path that I, I pursued, you know, so much. You know, I mean, maybe one day I will. I sit down and learn that that D minor tuning, and it's interesting though. But I, another, you know, I, I love the—I t- told you I love T Bone Walker. Uh, another cat that uses that same tuning is Albert Collins.
1: Oh wow. And Albert
2: Collins plays an F minor, but it's the same tuning, just tuned up, you know, and he uses lighter strings. But I always thought that would be cool. I I, and I never really sat down and learned how to play Albert Collins in his tuning too. I learned I can play some Collins stuff in standard, you know. But I always thought it'd be cool to bring those two together somehow and come up with something new. That would be but you only have one life to live, man. You know, and I bought a house and now I'm like fixing the house up. I mean, it's hard to find time, and that's that's that you're talking like a lot of time. Oh, yeah, to to, to learn how to do something correctly and and then make it your own, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. So, uh, just as far as people finding your music world, can they go to uh, find um, 19th Street Red?
2: Well, the best place to go is um, Band Camp, okay. is where I have all my music. This during the pandemic. I actually remastered my um, Street Dog and Avenue Boogie records, which both are have full bands on most of both of those records. Uh, Avenue Boogie has a horn, a New Orleans horn section, and I have some really cool. Uh, you know, I had some songs I wrote years ago on the West Coast that I never recorded because uh, I wanted to have a horn section. Uh-huh. They required it was a kind of a New Orleans rhythm and you know kind of because i love charles brown too and and charles brown and amos milburn and the new orleans sound and i don't know and ray charles you know so i wrote some songs that were kind of more like that than like gut bucket blues and the shed barbecue in um in ocean springs mississippi and Goche, mississippi um uh, uh gave me money to pay for the band for my cd oh nice So I was able to have like a, you know, a full band uh, with horns. And I had Jimmy Carpenter and Derek Houston. I had the great bass player David Hyde, uh, Willie Panker on drums, Alvin Hart played on a few cuts. And we did this record Avenue Boogie. My other record, which I did right before the storm, I did it off the levee in the lower ninth ward in this this, uh, garage that was a separate... Uh, from, the, from the Steamboat Pilot Houses in New Orleans. It's a separate garage. And I set up my recording studio there. You know, And I, I always record exclusively live to two-track with my own tape recorder. I have an old 50s Ampex 350. And we had three months, and I brought in various musicians, including, including the great, well wow, Roberto Lutti, who plays, who, who tours the world now with Playing for Change. Okay. If you know Playing for Change... Mm-hmm. And he's actually the was Mark Johnson's inspiration for playing for change oh, was wow. when he saw Roberto playing on the streets of New Orleans and Roberto ended up getting deported because he was there without a visa for years in New Orleans. But that's a whole other story. But he's a fantastic guitar player. He's one of the guys that played on the street dog session. So I, I took I have all the master tapes and I had all this time and I got this now I have this great a to D, you know, audio analog to digital conversion stuff. So I remastered all this stuff in super high resolution, way better than CD quality, and it's all up on Bandcamp for free. I'm giving it away for free. I recommend you download the full files. I mean, you can stream it, and it sounds better than CD. But if you download the files, it's even better. Okay. It's uh, 96k, 24-bit files. Anyway, that's all technical. But I also have outtakes. And alternate takes, there's like... Each album has got like an hour and a quarter or an hour and a half of music for each of those CDs. So it's Bandcamp, and I think it's forward slash 19th Street Red. But if you go to Bandcamp and just search, use the search engine and search 19th Street Red... Mm -hmm. There's my page. I also digitized and, into high resolution two other artists that I recorded in San Francisco that are really important artists that are super, that never really recorded with anyone else. A guy named uh, Bluesman Shane, okay? And he was from, he's from the Mississippi Delta. And he was popular in the Bay Area on the streets, but never recorded with anybody. I think one other guy recorded him might have recorded a couple of cuts, but my recording is definitely the only real definitive recording of of Willie, and uh, and he died. He was murdered in two thousand seven. Oh man, um, he's in. I could tell stories about Willie too, and I recorded another guy who was a gospel piano player. I heard him playing this electronic chord thing in the in the in the subway system in the in the in the in the um, underground subway system in San Francisco, and I had this beautiful piano so i brought him back to my studio i think i gave him 75 dollars for three songs and i never made any money on this stuff but it's up there too Vern robinson okay it's some incredible singing and gospel piano playing um and both all of that's for free on my site
1: cool man well uh anything else you'd like to plug upcoming events or anything that's upcoming you'd like to um let people know about
2: well um Right now, I'm uh, I, I I hit the streets in Clarksdale, regularly near Ground Zero. Um, I I go out there, you know, usually during you know Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. One one or two of those usually find me in the parking lot next to Ground Zero because I really like playing on the street
0: mm-hmm. where
2: you can do what you want and play the music you want, and you don't have all the pressure of like booking the gig, finding the musicians. Now, I, I rarely play on the street with a band, but I've done that too. I like playing in clubs, you know. I like playing in clubs where people listen with a band, you know. So th- that, I haven't gotten that back together. I, I was very good during the pandemic, and I I, I I I isolated myself, and I'm just coming back to, like, wanting to book gigs, you know. So mm-hmm. I'll be at, um, in Helena, Arkansas, uh, Quicksand, one of my drummers, has a stage there on um, uh, what's it called again? Uh, maybe it's, a, it's Apple Street. What's it called? The the main street there. Anyway, you know, he's, he Quicksand has a stage. I'll be playing on his stage a few okay. times, and I'll be uh, you know I'll go around, and, but I haven't really gotten to book gigs at this point yet. I I just started playing indoors yeah Yeah. i I haven't been indoors with anybody for you know a year and since since march march 13th was my last band gig yeah
1: okay well cool man well red thank you so much uh for taking the time uh that'll do it for us here
2: great man well thank you uh i hope we got some good material but you know you start me talking man (laughs) i wanted to talk about willie i want to talk more about new orleans wow you know but but uh But, you know, it's another time and place, man. That's why we didn't do it again. Good. All right, man. We're out of here.